Articles of Faith is a weekly interview show featuring scholars and writers who have written about the doctrines and teachings of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Articles of Faith is a production of Fair Mormon and is hosted by Nick Galetti. Stanford Carmack has a linguistics and law degree from Stanford University, as well as a doctorate in Hispanic languages and literature from the University of California, Santa Barbara, specializing in historical syntax. In the past, he has had articles published on Georgian verb morphology and object participle agreement in Old Spanish and Old Catalan. He currently researches Book of Mormon syntax as it relates to early modern English and contributes by means of textual analysis to Volume 3 of Royal Skousen's Book of Mormon Critical Text Project. He's here to talk today about articles he's contributed to The Interpreter, a journal of Mormon scripture. So welcome, Stanford. Thank you for coming in. Thank you. And uh, I guess I have to ask, I'm compelled to ask, with the name Stanford, then you went to Stanford University. Was that on purpose? And you probably got asked that question a few times. <laughs> well, my sister liked to say we were from the poor side of the family. It's a okay. it's a family name. It's the last name of my great-grandmother. Mm. And, uh, yeah, so I had one sister who went to BYU, my oldest sister, and then an- another one who went to Stanford. So I had to choose. So I actually <laughs> went to both as an undergrad. Gotcha. One year to BYU, then a mission, then I went to Stanford. Okay. But it had nothing to do with the fact that your name was Stanford? No, or? no, that's a family name, good okay. family name. All right. Yeah, great-grandmother who lived in Idaho. <laughs> that's all right. So uh, I guess after your college and mission uh, time, we leap forward, and, and I would assume your educational pursuits to some degree have brought you to working with Royal Skousen on this Book of Mormon critical text project. So how did that relationship come to be? Well, I first met Royal in August last year, so it hasn't been long that I've known Royal. Okay. I I emailed him back in 2007 when I was working as a tech writer here in Salt Lake. And, you know, I I was just working with a standard LDS text at the time, and I was looking at some variation in the text. And he emailed him a couple times, and he said, well, you need to look at the uh, critical text. Then I didn't email him again, or I didn't... Yeah, I emailed him in 2013 when I was thinking of... um, Looking, I was thinking of rewriting the Book of Mormon into you know present day English, and others oh, okay. have, others have done that. Uh, I don't know much about that field, but I then I started to use the OED while I did that, and I realized that there was a lot of old language that you didn't necessarily see in the Bible, just like he had said. So yeah, because when you rewrite something and you want to get, you're considering every word, you really think of the meaning. And that's when I thought, wow, there is something here yeah. to what he was saying. Yeah. And yeah, so I didn't, I first met him uh, August 2014. Also oh, uh, not long at all. No, no. I mean, before that, we had emailed back and forth a few times. Okay. Yeah. So I guess there was this recent conference just a couple weeks back that was put on by, I guess it was the Interpreter and the Maxwell Institute? It was BYU Studies. BYU Studies, BYU okay. Studies, Jack Welch, and Interpreter Foundation, okay. Dan Peterson. Yeah, they, Dan, uh, he introed the conference, and then Jack Welch had concluding remarks, and then there were four speakers. Okay. And I this was, was the first was on one, that. then Royal was the last one. Okay. And this was, of course, all the Book of Mormon critical texts project, kind of an explanation on it, or what did the well, event cover? Yeah, it covered... Uh, well, my work, you know, which deals with syntax, so I stuck to that. 
And then we had someone who looked at how the New Testament is used. The King James Bible New Testament is used in the Book of Mormon, mm-hmm. the interweaving of that. And then uh, another uh, another uh, presentation was on Tyndale and Moore and how their struggles in the 1530s related to the Book of Mormon and how you can see some of those issues addressed there. And then Royal finished up with... Uh, some of his work, and he, you know, it was quite wide-ranging what he talked about there. But he talked about meaning, and he talked about different themes in in the Book of Mormon as they relate to the Reformation. Okay. Now, I, I've gone through the articles that you've contributed. I've seen three articles in The Interpreter to date, and I started to feel a little bit like the work that you're doing and looking through the syntax and the word usage and things like that. It, it felt a little bit like uh, like forensic work, like a coroner that goes back and you know looks at different wounds or different pieces of evidence and tries to conclude what happened yeah. to this person. Is is that kind of like what you're doing, only with with words? Is you're able to put together these pieces? Right. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. I mean, the language of the Book of Mormon, you could look at it as a puzzle piece, say, and and trying to find where does that fit snugly, and uh, the syntactic evidence that I go over is really strong evidence because we all, you know, whenever we talk, whenever we write, we use what we've accumulated, you know, through our lives, and we don't really think about the form of what we're uh, saying. We think we're thinking about the content. So uh, we just don't. Uh, so it resists manipulation by an author, say, or you know, by any speaker because we're thinking about the content. And thus, you could say that in a lengthy text, the author will reveal himself for who he is in terms of uh, Joseph Smith would reveal himself to be a 19, early 19th century speaker of English. Um, and, uh, you know, yes, influenced by the Bible uh, and other, other things, but um, when we find things that are not biblical and that are not 19th century, then you say, hey, you know, could he have, could he have written this? That's the question. And uh, so, yeah, that's the kind of stuff I analyze. Yeah, and so with that being said, actually, these, these articles that you have in The Interpreter all deal with grammar and syntax and things like that. These I, I are based on, or at least it seems like they attempt to answer some of the criticisms of the Book of Mormon texts that have been used by critics for years. So... What are some of the criticisms that you've come across with respect to syntax and grammar? Well, there's a lot of verb agreement, which looks bad. Uh, and it, Meaning you know, what? Uh, you know, where you use was instead of were, mm-hmm. you know. So you look at that, and I mean, you can look at a host of different things. But what I do is I go to the critics, and they are a big help, you know, past critics. What language did they object to? What did they say, oh, this is terrible language? Here's Joseph Smith. And then also a uh, believing Mormon uh, analyst will will look at things and uh, discuss, well, this must have been Joseph Smith's language. And yes, he was biblical to a degree, but his own dialect came through. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, it's a big help to look at all the criticisms and say, what did they object to? You know, here, this person in 1905 objected to the plural mites, so with all their mites is in the earliest text about 12 times. Um, and so I, I think, well, why did that person object to that? It must not have been current. Uh, 
you know, 19th century. And sure enough, it wasn't. It mm -hmm. was dead by about the year 1700. You wouldn't see it. And where did where do I see it a lot? I see we see it a lot in a famous uh, work of literature called *La Mort d'Arthur* by Mallory, which most people know about who study literature in the past. So anyway, uh, that actually the critics are a big help because then you look at that and say, okay, we'll go. Well, can we find this in, anywhere in the textual record? And is is it a match? And and you know for. In my presentation a week ago, I I started off with that phrase, with all their mites, mm -hmm. which you can actually read it in the current LDS, LDS text once. It's in Jacob 5, uh, but the 11 other instances have been eliminated. Been they dropped the S. They dropped the S, like you would expect. And uh, we, can, we can see, we can trace with digital databases, you can see where... The, how where the usage was heavy, and it was in the early 1500s, uh, and then it dropped off very quickly, and it was very light through the 1600s, and you don't find it after that. So you can either say the source view, Joseph Smith had to use old sources, or the analogical view. Uh, Joseph Smith was just a genius in terms of analogy where he was able to make all these analogical connections and uh, and create the language of the Book of Mormon that corresponds with older language. So eventually I'll address that, you know, both so the source view and from the critic's point of view, that's the plagiarisms of Joseph Smith. Right. And then the other view is, say, the critical Mormon view that this is Joseph Smith's language is that he was able to create this language by analogy with language he knew from the Bible and other sources. And um, but once you consider many many analogical connections, the odds of him making all of those are very low indeed. Okay, so I guess the the end result of this is to not necessarily dismiss a critic's opinion, but actually to to take it and use that to project you into other evidences. In right. Yeah. No. Yeah. The critics the critics point us to interesting language in the book, and almost every time you can find it in the textual record. And so when the critics were doing this, they didn't have access to the, to the, you know, the old books like we have today. Mm -hmm. We now have great, and this is only in the last few years where we've gotten these great databases. So there's an expert in corpus linguistics at BYU, Mark Davies, and he a few years ago, did a really quick corpus on early modern English. And it has 400 million words. Uh, a couple months ago, uh, public, uh, a bunch of texts became available to anyone who wants to download them. They're now publicly available. You can download 25,000 early modern English books. Okay. And if you have the interest and expertise, you can... You can analyze those. And so I've created a corpus of my own of 500 million words. And I, so I use Davis's corpus of 400, of my own of 500, and I search for things. And it's amazing the matching that you see between the Book of Mormon and between those corpora. And that this is between in the 1500s? Is that what you said? Or? So, yeah, early modern English, okay. to, uh, to give people an idea, is from... The time William Caxton began printing English books, English language books, 
around the year 1475. Okay. The first printed book was 1473 or 4. He printed that one actually out of England. But he's the beginning of the early modern English period. And then it goes up roughly to the year 1700. So it's 225 years. Shakespeare's in the middle. Uh, the Spanish Armada 1588 is kind of squarely in the middle of that period. Uh, so during Queen Elizabeth's reign, that's why they call it Elizabethan English, and there are various terms for the English before that and after it. But um, yeah, that's when you see the incredible matching with the early, and you only see it if you're looking at Skousen's earliest text of the Book of Mormon. Okay, like the printer's he, manuscript and things like that? Yeah, or? so he took the two manuscripts, original printers, and the 20 editions, he uh, cataloged all the variants. He created a computer collation very um, meticulously over more than two decades. And after about after about 20 years with Yale, he published that. So it's been out since 2009. I think it was August 2009. Anyone can buy it. It's as close as we can get to the dictation of Joseph Smith mm -hmm. uh, by scholarly means. And when you ha when you see that text and you compare it to early modern English, that's where you get the matching. You don't get the great matching in any other period of English. Interesting. And and I guess some people might ask the question: So, well, so what? You know, so what? Why? Why does what does this connection mean? Why is it? Why is it relevant? And of course, your articles in the Interpreter go on to explain that a little bit. So let's look at the first one that you did. That's uh, entitled "A Look at Some Non-Standard Book of Mormon Grammar." Um, what were some of the findings that you had with respect in that article to maybe even specific criticisms or, or connections that you've already talked about? Okay, so I started off with three different phrases that Royal Skousen had addressed twenty years earlier. Just wondering, okay, is this New, is this New York State dialect from Joseph Smith? Is this biblical English, or is it? Uh, earlier, uh, non-biblical English, but from the same period. Uh, so I looked at in them days, mm -hmm. and the OED is very clear. It shows um, formal writing around the year 1600 that uses that. You can you can see the examples in the in the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, and that uh, the first edition of that dictionary was published around 1930. The second edition, 1989, I believe. And, uh, you know, I had bought a CD-ROM version, and it cost quite a bit, but I bought it. And um, so I can search for phrases pretty quickly. And you can now do it online if you have a subscription. Sure. And that costs some money, too, to get the subscription if you're not affiliated with a university. Uh, but, um, yeah, and I'm not affiliated right now with any university. Um, but anyway, so I, you can see in them days, them before a plural noun. And the Book of Mormon has two of those. Most of the time it would use in those days. So you see exceptional usage and you see variation in the text. And then you can see it in the early modern period. So that's one. Another one he had considered was had smote. So instead of had smitten, which we expect from the Bible, because that's what you get in the Bible, King James Bible, 100% of the time. And we're talking about the King James Bible because that was the dominant Bible sure. of 1820s America. That was the Bible that Joseph Smith was reading. Okay, so had smitten 
is usually found in the Book of Mormon, but exceptionally you find had smote. And sure enough, in the textual record, especially in the 1600s, you can find in, in large databases, you can find many examples of that writing. And these are used in sermons and by educated people, you know, who knew Latin and Greek and uh, knew some of them knew Hebrew. And they used uh, language like that in their sermons, in their writings, in their high-level writings. There was just, that in linguistics is called a leveled past participle. So you don't use that third form smitten. You use the second form of the verb, the simple past tense, to, you know, to express the past participle. What in standard English, you know, smitten, and that goes for many different verbs. And you can find that in Shakespeare. So let's say twice in the Book of Mormon you have had gave instead of had given. Uh, you look at Shakespeare and you find it there. So. If you criticize the Book of Mormon and then you say, oh, Joseph Smith was imitating biblical language, you then have to admit, well, it was, if he was imitating biblical language, we find a match in early modern English. It's possible that he uh, uh, was just receiving words that were written in early modern English. So those were two of the phrases. Right now, it escapes me what the third one is, but what I started the article off. And mm -hmm. then I went through... Um, other unlikely usages that are not biblical and where you could say, oh, that's a weird use, and I, I mentioned with all their mites. There are other ones with multiple negation. All those have been criticized. The earliest text of the Book of Mormon has multiple negation, and that was very common in the early modern English period. You see it in Shakespeare. You see it throughout the period. Um, one good phrase is, nor no manner of ites, which we, we, that's a famous phrase from 4th mm -hmm. Nephi. It now reads, nor any manner of ites. There were, there were not any manner of ites or something like that. Um, and so that, again, is just an early modern English usage. You, do, you don't find it in the Bible, uh, that phrase, nor no manner of. Uh, but you And you don't find it in the 1700s either. You just can't find it in the textual record. It was gone. So the, way, the only way to account for it, again, is the source view or the analogical view. And the source view is, did Joseph Smith read old literature? Which there's no evidence for that, that he read Mallory's La Morte d'Arthur. You can find it in that book. You can find it in Foissart's Chronicles, translated in 1523. You know, I looked for famous works of literature where you see that phrase, and that would be the source view that Joseph Smith needed to refer to, say, dozens of old sources to get the language of the Book of Mormon. Yeah. Then the so that one on its face seems uh, entirely implausible. No evidence that Joseph Smith was reading widely in old literature. Some of that old literature requires training to be able to read it. Take there's some language from the famous poem by Edmund Spencer, The Fairy Queen. You need to really study and, and look at word meanings and know the old syntax to be able to read that poem and understand it. And there's, there's a phrase there in ether that corresponds with a phrase I found in that poem with mites, in their mites. So that's the source view, which is, I think, fairly readily uh, dismissed. 
by any reasonable analyst. And then the, so the other, the only other possible view is the analogical view. And I have not uh, tackled that. That may be an upcoming paper where okay. I address the analogical view. And actually, uh, it would be a paper I would write with Royal Skousen because he is a, a leading expert on analogy. He has several books in linguistics on analogy and how um, analogy has shaped language and helps languages change and and, and that uh, topic. So your next article kind of goes to the next level with this, and it talks, it was called What Command Syntax Tells Us About Book of Mormon Authorship. And of course, all of this goes back to whether or not the criticism, rather, that Joseph Smith was the author versus a divine kind of conduit, if you will, for this interpretation and, and revelation of the Book of Mormon. So what what exactly, this is this is one verb, right? Right. One verb command. Right. So it might even seem like a bit of an overstatement to some, but how can the use of one word contribute to either condemn or vindicate the claims to divine authorship? Uh, yeah, it does it by syntax. So it's an extended syntactic uh, structure. And all I looked at was the verb command when it governs a following verb. So if you have no verb after it that it's related to, I didn't look at those. And there are enough counts in both the King James Bible and the Book of Mormon where you get where you can get some statistical uh, uh, analysis that stands up to scrutiny. So you can get some significance in the differences. But I, when I did it, I didn't know what I would see. You know, I just thought, oh, I'm, I know it uses it in an interesting way in the Book of Mormon, and I'm sure it does in the Bible. So I cataloged it all. And I, so there were 170 in the Bible and 163 in the Book of Mormon. Uses of command. Of command with a, with a verb. when it governs a following verb. Mm-hmm. So they're very close in numbers. And uh, there are two different ways that the syntax will treat the following verb. It will use an infinitive, and that's how we would do it today. And that's actually how the textual record shows that Joseph Smith's language would have been 98 to 99% with the infinitive. And the Bible was 80% with the following infinitive. But the Book of Mormon is the opposite. It only does uses the infinitive 20% of the time. So the other uh, times it does, it uses that and usually should. So it would be something like Moroni command, uh, commanded that his army should commence in digging up earth, okay? So that should, instead of Moroni commanded his armies to commence in digging up earth. Those are, that's the difference. And again, so it's a clear difference. Statistically, the chi-square test tells you that it did not happen by accident, okay? It just wasn't. There's, there are too many of them, and they're too different. It's just rem, the chances that it was by accident are remote. So you then would need to say, since Joseph Smith departed from the biblical way, that he did it consciously, Okay, because his own language would have been even more different than right. the Bible. It, like I said, it would have been ninety-eight to ninety-nine percent commanded that uh, commanded his armies to start digging up. So then you say he had to consci- you you as an analyst you would say well then he must have consciously liked the one with that, and that he followed that one. 
Now, however, if you say that, then he would have done it rather mechanically across the board, but then he shows sensitivity to early modern English patterns. And there are things in the Book of Mormon that corresponded with early modern English that are not found in the Bible. So that's, that's why that study is interesting. And that was actually the first study that I did about a year ago when I started to look at the Book of Mormon. For, for years, my father told me, look at the Book of Mormon as a linguist, and I never did. And a little over a year ago, that's when I uh, did that analysis. And, and then I, that, so that was the second article that came out. But the first article that came out was the one I wrote second, mm. actually. Really? But it was more accessible. It's a less technical article. And so that's why that one was published first. Well, and this latest one is, is quite Im- impressive as far as its size. And that's the one that is called uh, The Implications of Past Tense Syntax in the Book of Mormon. I think it was like 60 or 70 pages. Quite, quite extensive. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, and again, we're, we're going over an analysis of the text with respect to assumptions about the Book of Mormon. And so this is, this is really just another layer of what, you're, what you've kind of already talked about and the use of language. And with all of this that you've kind of put together so far, have you been able to come to some con- kind of conclusion or has it helped in any way bring you to a, uh, an understanding of Joseph Smith's role in the authorship of the Book of Mormon? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that, uh, among believing Mormons, there are two views, at least, on the, on the text. So the one that, is, that prevails, and you can go back to B.H. Roberts, who studied the Book of Mormon, is that, yes, indeed, we can account for all the bad grammar because it's Joseph Smith's language. Now, it was um, Skousen in 1998 who wrote an article, and there may have been others before, but I'm, I'm not an expert on that. But I, I, at least I know there, he talked about, well, he talked about three views. One is the, and these are the terms he used, the ironclad translation view, which is that no mistakes were allowed by the Lord in the setting down of the text, or in, at least in the... Um, at least in the dictation, and maybe the scribes made error, errors, but everything was very tightly controlled. And uh, yeah, maybe maybe it includes the scribes too. I'm not uh, exactly sure of that. But anyway, the ironclad control view is that no errors permitted. the The one that Skousen talked that he thought the evidence pointed to was the tight control view, and then there was the loose control view, and that's that's the view that B.H. Roberts had, that Joseph Smith received the ideas, and then he um, put that into biblical language and partly into his own language. Mm-hmm. And then the tight, tight control view, which you could... Re- it's, it's really the earlier English view. Uh, it's the view of earlier English that was revealed to Joseph Smith word for word, but with errors by either uh, dictation or by the scribes. Uh, writing it down. Uh, some of the earliest witnesses point to ironclad control, but some of the things they say are things that they actually couldn't see. So as eyewitnesses, they could not see what Joseph saw in the seer stone in the hat. So that's the ironclad control view. That doesn't, the manuscripts don't support that. And 
Uh, Royal Skousen knows those better than anyone. He's worked with those uh, extensively. And it just doesn't hold up from what you see in in those manuscripts. So we're either left we're left with either uh, tight control or loose control. And so take the past tense. That is something Joseph Smith would not have known. Uh, you could say he made an analogical leap from did eat from the Bible. That's a possibility. However, again, his usage would have been mechanical and it wouldn't have shown the distribution that matches the, the late 1500s. So the use of, of did with the infinitive for the past tense, which everyone who's read the Book of Mormon knows. So did go forth, you know, Nephi did go forth into the wilderness. Anyone quickly figures out that it's not used emphatically like it is today. And um, there, there are definite things you can point to and, and reason to that point of view for the Book of Mormon. But the distribution of how it uses did with adverbs and with inversion, that means the subject and did inverting their normal word order. Uh, in the strength of the Lord, did we go forth is an example of when you have an inverted word order. So anyway, you look at those distributions, you look at the work of a linguist from 1953 who studied it very carefully, and the match of the Book of Mormon is with the late 1500s and with no other time period. So you cannot just simply say Joseph Smith mechanically made that analogical connection with Diddy or from something else and used it in the Book of Mormon. No, it goes beyond that to a deeper level of matching the distribution of a particular time period in English. So that points again to tight control by the Lord, meaning the Lord was giving Joseph Smith words. And if you if you read in 2 Nephi chapter 27, the language there around verse 20 is very specific about that. It says very uh, directly, yes, uh, the Lord is delivering words to Joseph Smith. So it fits there as well. Okay. So it's your conclusion then that, this, that that's the most likely way that things went down, that, that, that he was getting specific words and he was really just dictating what he was reading. Yes, exactly. So, yeah, the Second Nephi 27 points to that. There's a scripture in Third Nephi 21 that points to that. And the, the textual evidence points to that. The syntax and the lec and the lexical items, which is what Royal Skousen first pointed out in, um, uh, you know, as early as around the year 2000 in some of his conjectures, but then in an article in about 2004 or five. Okay. Well, my last question comes in to be, why, why did the Lord use the 1500s? I mean, maybe that's a question that's unanswerable, but why does, does that seem to be the consistent in the analysis? What's special about that? Yeah, I think that, um, well, think about, okay, the book is full of King James English. We have many passages, as we know, from Isaiah, Matthew, and um, Micah, and, you know, other places, Malachi, etc. So that language, the King James Bible is largely uh, William Tyndale's language. More than 50% of it is um, in the King James Bible. Tyndale did his translations, and he's regarded as an excellent translator. And he was killed in 1536. He came out with his 
New Testament translation in 1526, and then he had an update of that in 1534 along with uh, part of the Old Testament. He did not finish the Old Testament before he was killed. Uh, and Coverdale, I think, uh, completed that, Miles Coverdale. And he Coverdale uh, lived to the ripe old age of 81, I believe, before mm. he died. So, But anyway, the King James Bible has a lot of Tyndale language in it, well, that's old language, and that's going. The Lord chose that language, obviously, obviously, because that was the dominant English Bible in America in the 1820s. So that's going to be in there. Apparently, I think the Lord chose older language because it would harmonize with the King James Bible. So it fits very well with all that language that was going to be in there, anyway, and so. That's a possibility. Again, as you said, it's unanswerable ultimately, but we do note it harmonizes with it. So that means that it is distinct. And I would say the Book of Mormon translation, not by Joseph Smith, but in the divine realm, is a natural language translation because it has all, you know, it has so much variation that you see from the early modern English period that you don't see in the Bible. So there is, you know, you have had smote and had smitten. That's an example of variation. Anyone can understand that. You have in them days, in those days. Again, variation that you see in the textual record. So that's what I mean by a natural language translation. You have in Alma 39, when Alma's speaking to Corianton, right? Uh, he's saying, for thou didst forsake the ministry and did go over to the land of Siron, not didst go over again. Uh, it doesn't use didst twice. That's, again, variation you see in the early modern English period, a natural language translation. So it's, uh, I would say it's a less artificial translation than the King James Bible. In and I'm just talking technically, linguistically, mm -hmm. artificial. The King James Bible, the translators made a point of eliminating variation. The Book of Mormon has the variation. It has people which was and people which were. It has both of those. It has people was, people were. It, you know, could go on. It has I have and hath which you see in the, in the early modern English textual record, the King James Bible would have only I have and have. It would never switch into hath. The Book of Mormon has thou hast, followed by and hath. Again, variation that you see in the textual record, you don't see it in the Bible. So why, why the, natural trans, the natural language translation? I don't know that one. Um, it, it's, you know, beautiful to a linguist to behold. I mean, I, I love that kind of thing. And it really, uh, but, you know, it's it's no worse than the Bible. It's distinct. Uh, it's, it's the language of that period. Adam and Eve, which was our first parents, that, you know, you can find that criticized. But I found a um, writer, a prolific writer of the 15, late 1500s who wrote, after the manner of Adam and Eve, which was made of the ground, okay? So you wouldn't find that in the Bible, but there it is in the Book of Mormon, and there it is by a prolific writer from the late 1500s. So it's meant to be consistent with 
with Bible text and Bible language so that this, they could be studied together. Certainly, it doesn't represent 1800s English. So, again, Joseph would have had to have been very f- aware of these early 1500s texts. Yes. Uh, which there's no evidence to support that he would have been even, there's no libraries that had that. There's where would have even found something like that? Yeah. So, so it really comes down to the fact that the odds of Joseph having access to these sources to, let's call it plagiarized, those sources is incredibly low. Yes, exactly. Yeah, he would have needed a real research library. He would have needed to be an early modern English linguist and literary expert to produce the language we see in the text. That's what I've concluded from all my study to this point. Well, I for those of you that are listening that are huge syntax fans, these three articles are certainly going to be up your uh, your interest. And at, at this point, I don't know if you have any others coming out. Do you have others? Well, there forward? there will be a short article, and people might be glad to know that it's a very <laughs> very short article. And you know, in the future, the, my articles will probably be shorter. There's one coming out in a month. Okay. Uh, and it, it talks about why we need to use the Oxford English Dictionary instead of Webster's 1828 Dictionary. Right, and that was that was something that Royal, when we interviewed him a few months back, said the same thing. He was very adamant about, about using that. And uh, So, excellent. Well, uh, we will have links to all three of those interpreter articles for the posting of this episode at blog.fairmormon.org. Stanford Carmack, thank you for coming in and talking about this. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Articles of Faith with your host, Nick Galletti. This has been a production of Fair Mormon. This and other podcasts are available at fairmormon.org. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of Fair Mormon or The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Please subscribe to our show in iTunes. Questions or comments can be sent to podcast at fairmormon.org. Tune in each Monday for another episode of Articles of Faith. Thank you for listening.